Hey everyone, welcome to our New Day Community Live Q&A uh, with yours truly, JK. And I really appreciate the questions that have come in and the, the time that we're going to just take to answer these questions. So whether you're able to join with us uh, live on here in this Facebook post or you're able to watch this a little bit later, feel free to continue to send any questions in. And I'll do my best to answer these, um, however often or consistent I'm able to do this. And uh, thank you for being on with us. And I'm going to just go through some of the questions. First, I just wanted to say for recording purposes, um, what an amazing, amazing service we had on Sunday. I was so blessed by how much our New Day people, you guys, showed God's love to the four widows. Uh, hey, Nikki. Hey, Alejandra. Thank you guys for joining on. I know you guys have other things to do as well. So whenever you need to jump off, just uh, feel free to do so. Um, but what an amazing time of showing the love of God to four widows who just needed to be reaffirmed that God is working in their life. He's always with them. He hasn't forsaken them. And I'm excited this coming Sunday uh, to present them four checks, uh, each of them a check of God's goodness through his people uh, to them. So uh, a good amount of money has come in and I'm excited to divvy that up and give that to the four uh, ladies. Um, so with that being said, I just want to go through some of the questions that had been asked and uh, uh, good afternoon, Betty. And we will go ahead and uh, tackle these questions one by one. If you do have a follow-up question to the things that I'm sharing, or if this is after um, you're watching the recording, go ahead, just put a question in the comment. I'll make sure to pick it up a little bit later, and we'll go from there. Hey, good afternoon, Phil. Thank you guys for joining on uh, with us today. Uh, anybody else you see online, just uh, let me know that you're on. And I'll make sure to uh, to greet you. Uh, so the first one is this, is that, Justin, you mentioned before, uh, God taking you through a season of pruning and stripping. Uh, what was that process like? And how did you survive it? Well, that process is something I think is, a, is a extremely important to our preparation to any season that God is going to prepare us for. And uh, hey, Jessica. And as I, as I begin to look back on that process, I realize through the entire process that God was pruning me for a purpose. And he was stripping me of some things for an extremely important purpose. And this question provoked a lot of emotion for me, a lot of good emotion, but also um, some tough times that I went through personally, not knowing exactly what God was up to, why was he allowing me to go through some of the things that I was going through, and why did I not, why was I not able to have what I thought um, I had worked so hard <laughs> to have? And I want you just to think about three words. Um, when you have a chance to think through these, write them down. Uh, but the pruning process is about identity, it's about intimacy, and it's about contentment. This, this will really help uh, walk through any season of life when you understand this, is first identity. Uh, I think the Lord really wanted me to know where my identity started to shift off of from who I am in Christ and my security of who I am to him and who he is to me into what I did for God. And without even realizing it, I found myself uh, identifying with, I'm a minister, I love to teach the word, I disciple people, I mentor people, I counsel people, um, people need me in their life to help me to help them get where they need to go. I'm an inspiration to people. And so what happens is my identity shifted from who God is for me, who I am to him to, man, I need people in order for me to be who I am. And when I stepped away from a ministry uh, three years ago, I began to see little by little how much my identity was in what people either got from me how they felt toward me, their thoughts about me. And so identity was the first part of that stripping process. I want to read a passage real quick for you because I don't want to, I don't want to neglect um, the purpose behind the pruning process. And it says this in John uh, 15, verse 2. I'm the true vine, or verse uh, 1 and 2. My father is the vine dresser. 
in every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. In every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it that it may bear more fruit. Oftentimes when we're going through this season, we wonder what we've done wrong. And, and that was a question I felt like the Lord was saying, Justin, you don't need to ask that. This is not whether you did something wrong or whether you, you did something right. You were in a season of producing fruit for my kingdom. And now I am going to prune you so that there is a next season that you can produce a tremendous or greater amount of fruit coming forward. It goes on to say in John 15, 8, that my father is glorified in this or that God is glorified in this, that we produce fruit, that we help to see lives transformed by his love and by his grace. And so the first word that I, I had to really understand is about identity. God was very interested in who he was to me and who I was to him and who I was becoming in him. The second word that I mentioned was intimacy. This was a place where when I asked the question, God, what I do wrong? It, it kept me from this intimate moment when I realized, man, this is a, an intimate moment of a relationship that the pruning process, the stripping process is not to harm me. It's not to punish me. It's not because I did something wrong or that he's disappointed or that he's trying to fix something. No, this is an intimacy aspect of our relationship. And I started to embrace it as such. I started to embrace that one identity, God, you are always good. You always have my best in mind and you're always setting me up to succeed. So with that being said, I trust that in this moment, in this season that I'm going through, that you and I actually are becoming more intimate with each other, becoming more acquainted with each other. I'm starting to learn his heart and how his, his thoughts are toward me. And then the third one that was one of the coolest discoveries of my life during that season was contentment. And Paul said these words in Philippians chapter four. He said, I have learned whether I'm abased or I'm abounding. So whether I'm on the top or I feel like I'm on the bottom, I have learned how to be content. I didn't realize that I didn't have that in my life. I didn't realize that self has risen so much in my ministry life that um, I was very ambitious of what I could accomplish for God, the great exploits for God. And I could do this and I could do this and I could do this not realizing it was always at a, it always led me to a place of discontentment i was never satisfied with what god was doing in me who he was for me and who i was to him and so when as i went through this process of being pruned and stripped and uh the lord showed me a season that i was in was a um a waiting to land process it was a what do they use it in terms of uh, of flying is um oh it, it goes past my mind for right now, uh, a, a holding pattern. I was in a holding pattern and he taught me how to be content, like how to be content with, because now I'm not no longer fixated on a destination. My ambition is no longer taking me there. I'm actually very content with where I'm at today, knowing that as I continue to obey God, he will bring me to those greater pastures and greater exploits and all those things. So ultimately, my heart's desire is to be content with knowing him and with being his. Uh, so that, that, that pruning season was an important one. And I stepped into this role as pastoring New Day. And I'm grateful for that pruning season. I look back and go, wow, God, you, you were able to internally shift my lens and shift my mindset so that I can properly pastor the people that you have in front of me. And without that two and a half year stripping and pruning process, there would be no way I would do this effectively or in a way that you wouldn't be my pawns in my ambition to build something great. Um, he, he was able to cause me to be content and to be intimate and to identify with who he is. And now I can partner with you guys. I no longer have to use you to get to where I want to go. So that was a very important season. Uh, question number two, let me go ahead and just write, uh, I'm going to put these so you have these questions just for further reference. Uh, question number two, are we to fear God? And what does that actually mean? Uh, Proverbs 14, 27, I want to read that passage to you because I think it's a good foundational passage. It says these words, uh, 26 and 27, in the fear of the Lord, there is strong confidence and his children will have a place of refuge. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life, 
to turn one away from the snares of death. And so there's a number of passages, almost uh, nearly uh, over 50 passages that I can think of in my mind about fearing God. Uh, But this fear is not about being afraid of God. Many of us live in a sense of condemnation that is at the lowest part of who we are without even realizing it. We fear that one day God will punish us, one day God will reject us, or one day that God will um, be mad at us. And when you have that sense that God will reject you, uh, that God is going to be disappointed in you, or God is going to punish you, man, you can never truly get intimate. And so me fearing God is not what he will do to me or the consequences he will bring on my life. That is not fearing God. That is being afraid. And there's no intimacy with fear. It says that perfect love cast out all fear. So what is fearing God? I want to give you a very simple definition. I'm actually going to, I'll post it right here. And you probably heard me say it before, but fearing God is honoring who he is and valuing what he said. So when, if I'm going to live a life of fearing God, I am going to honor who he is in my life. Who is he? He is the creator. He is the king of all kings. He is the Lord of all lords. He is my Abba father. I'm going to honor who he is and I'm going to value what he said. So I'm going to take the word of God. I'm going to go, I'm going to value this more than I value my own feelings or opinions. And I'm going to honor who you are in my life, that you are my creator. You are my Abba. You are my father. And I'm going to honor that place that you have inside my life. And I'm going to value what you said. Now that becomes a lifestyle of what? Fearing, excuse me, (laughs) of fearing God that I'm actually honoring him in my life. I will seek him first and foremost. And I will now place his word and his thoughts above my own thoughts and my own opinions and understanding. So to fear God is to honor who he is and to value uh, what he has said or what he has spoken over my life. Now, this one's a, a very precious one to me, this next question. And I hope I can really unpack it a little bit as quick as possible is how do you forgive yourself? That's a biggie. Sometimes we struggle to receive the forgiveness of God, but then there's others who go, I know God forgave me, but I just can't seem to forgive myself of something I've done maybe a year ago, an hour ago, 10 years ago, or 40 years ago. And that weighs on you and you live with a sense of guilt, shame, and condemnation. And so I really want to put this out there first. Forgiveness is simple. I know it feels so hard. I didn't say it was easy, but it's, it's a simple thing to do. Forgiveness is a, a decision that we make in faith. So we're putting our faith upon something other than how we feel about the situation. And forgiving yourself is a process and a battle. <laughs> Let me explain this because even when you forgive somebody else, now remember everything in the kingdom first and foremost happens when you receive it from the Father. So I first have to receive his forgiveness in order to forgive myself. I have to know that he has released me of owing him anything, or he has released me of the fear of any punishment that's going to come on my life. And so, Father, you forgave me of my sins means that he says, I will remember them no more, and there's no more fear of punishment that's coming to your life. So how do we forgive ourselves for some of the things that we've done in our past that we know we've hurt people? We've done things that are are, 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 uh, detestable before God. We have thought things that we should never have thought. And so now we come to a place of forgiving ourselves. And I think it's realizing, and please hear me, I know it, it sounds just spiritual and religious, but it's so, so true, is that your old man, the one who partook of those things, is dead. That you're forgiving not who you are in Christ, you're forgiving that old man that did something, of course, with your own volition, but he did something, but he no longer is alive. And so I'm putting that old man in the past. I'm putting him in the past. But you say, well, what if it's something that I did while I was saved? In the same respect, it was not your new man that you were walking in. You were tricked or conned or deceived into believing that that was the best decision at that moment. That was your old nature rising up, your old man rising up and saying, you know what, this is the way that we are to live our life. And so I'm not forgiving myself. I'm forgiving 
the very old nature, so to speak, of who I used to be. I'm letting that go and saying, you know what? That's not who I was. That's not who I am. And I know that God has forgiven me. And so therefore, I'm going to forgive myself as well. The best illustration I have of this is if you have an iron that you iron clothes with, when you plug it in, it gets really, really hot really quick. And if you were to unplug it within a second and I said, hey, you should put that iron to your face, would you do it? You wouldn't. The reason why is because it's still hot. So forgiveness is like unplugging the iron. But remember, there's still a process of watching our emotions and how we think and how we feel cool down to the place where we can accept that we are forgiven and we have forgiven ourselves. So people go, man, I thought I forgave them, but I just feel so, yeah, don't worry. Just remind yourself, Father, I receive your forgiveness so I can freely give it to them. The next day you feel like, man, I just don't want to see them. Father, I just receive your forgiveness and I know you want to see me so that I can now freely forgive them. And I thank you that these emotions are cooling down and they're dying down. And so I just receive from you, Father, that forgiveness so I can freely give it right now. I forgive them. Three days later, Father, I'm struggling in my emotions, but I thank you that I've forgiven them. And I just receive a greater capacity to receive forgiveness so I can extend more of it to that individual. What you're doing is you're fighting the good fight of faith. You're battling to hold on to that which you unplugged. Don't let the enemy cause you to plug that back in and go, oh, I thought I forgave. I just can't. I just can't receive your forgiveness. And now, man, you plug it back in and the thing heats up again. And now you're angry and bitter and hurt and all those crazy things. Um, let's go with the next. Let me just uh, post that question too. How do you forgive uh, yourself? Oh, sorry. I didn't see you guys here writing. Um, okay. See how do you balance? Uh, that's a great question. You mentioned before taking God. Okay, praise the Lord. Kids are coming back from recess. Got to go. I've been so blessed. Awesome. Cool, cool, cool. Okay, here's the next question that we got here is, uh, uh, Justin, you preach a, a gospel message of grace. Yes, I do. I'm very, very, uh, I double down on grace as much as I can. How would you define grace? And what is your view on sin and repentance? And are you scared others will hear your words and live in sin? I think those are great questions, and so let me just go through that one by one. So you preach a message of grace. Yes, I do. Let me tell you why. I'm going to share a passage from, uh, actually, this is interesting. It says the law was given through Moses. Now, this is interesting. The law was given, but grace and truth came through Jesus. So law is something that was given. It means there's a distance between the two, but grace and truth, they came. They actually met us. Grace meets you right where you are. Truth meets you right where you are. And it calls you up into who you are. Uh, but Acts chapter 20, verse 32. Listen to this. It's in the Passion, Passion Translation. It says, And so now I entrust you into God's hands and the message of his grace, which is all you need to become strong. All of God's blessings are imparted through the message of his grace. And he provides, which he provides is a spiritual inheritance given to all his holy ones. And so I'm a firm believer that the grace of God transforms us into the image of God. If God's grace does not transform, it's perverted. And so the reason why I'm not scared that others will live in sin now that they have grace is the same reason Paul said it. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Of course not. Why? Because grace transforms us from our old man into our new man, into the image of Jesus Christ. How do I define grace? Here's a simple definition. I did not make it up, but I love it. Is grace is God's empowering presence on our life to become. So God calls us to be the righteousness of God and walk in the holiness of God and we are complete and we are perfect in Christ. And so grace now is his empowering presence to become who we already are, is that I now receive the abundance of grace. Romans 5.17 says we are to receive the abundance of grace and receive the gift of righteousness that we may reign in life. So grace is God's empowering presence that is on your life to cause you to become, become what? Into the image of Jesus Christ. And so that's why I'm big on the grace message because um, I would rather focus on what Jesus did for us 
than the sin that somebody committed because when we become sin conscious and law is consistently spoken, think about this, the, the power of sin is in the law. So the more that we preach law, the more that sin empowers itself in our lives and the more we struggle, the more I preach grace, God's empowering presence to transform us into who we are in God's eyes, the more that we see transformation. We are very sin conscious in our, our Christianity. We, we have become very self-centered in our Christianity. And so we're kind of like, I don't want to sin. And I, man, I don't want to mess up today. No, Father, I just receive your grace today, your empowering presence in my life to live just like Christ did, that I'll overcome any battle that I come. Temptation will not seem tasty to me. It will seem offensive to me. And I just receive your grace to, to walk through the day. Uh, so that's so. Here's the next question: What is your view on sin and repentance? I believe that we do sin, but you don't have to. Now, let me tell you why. First John chapter uh, two, verse one. First John two, verse one. And I'm just trying to go briefly through this, so I don't bore you <laughs> with uh, our time here. But uh, can you? explain what grace is. So if you just ask that, Gary Tate, the grace is God's empowering presence on our life to become just like Christ. Look at verse number one. It says, my little children, first John two, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, it didn't say when it said, if the power of sin has been broken on your life, the power of sin is sin is no longer my master. I no longer have to say yes to sin. I can now give my members to righteousness and I can live unto God and consider my old man dead. So my view on sin is this sin will cripple your relationship with God. In this sense, it will cause you to not be able to have intimacy with the Father. It does not. Sin does not change God's view of you. It changes your ability to receive from God. I know that sounds like just a blanket uh, caption, but think about this. Sin in your life does not change God's view of you. It changes your ability to receive from God. God. And so the more that you play with sin, think about sin, try not to sin, the more that you're consumed with not wanting to fail is that you are not trusting in the grace to cause you to become. You're actually relying on your own performance and your own strength to try to live this Christian life. And so sin is wrong. Sin is deadly. Sin is not to be played with, but sin does not determine whether or not I'm okay with God. <laughs> Jesus does. And where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And so what's my view on repentance? I have a couple of thoughts on that real quick, and then we'll go to the next question. Repentance to me is surrendering. It is surrendering to the amazing, overwhelming, relentless love of God. When we look at Luke chapter 15, it gives us three stories, three parables, one of the lamb that was lost or the sheep that was lost, one of the coin that was lost, and one of the prodigal son. In none of those cases did we see true repentance, but yet we see that God met those people right where they are, met the sheep. The shepherd found the sheep. The sheep never came back to the shepherd. The shepherd found it, overjoyed, put it on its shoulders and brought it back to the fold. And so there's this surrendering nature. The, the, the coin was found and there's this surrendering nature to be put back to where you rightfully belong, which is in the wallet or the purse. The prodigal son, he just said to himself, man, I, I'm, I'm, I'm hungry. I'm going back home. I'm not even worthy. And so he defined his life by his sin. But God said, you know what? He saw him from a distance, ran, met him, kissed him, said, get, man, get a fatted calf, get the ring, get the robe, get the sandals. We were going to have a party. My son was dead and now he is, he's found. So repentance is important to confess our sin, but not to wallow in it, not to dwell in it, not to focus on it. It's just simply to surrender to the love of God because most often when we sin, we cannot receive from God. We wait a couple days before we talk with him and then we feel like, okay, I've, I've, I went through my penance and now I can receive from God. And that is not Christianity at all. Uh, so I hope I answered that question. I'm going to put that question uh, right here in the comments. Okay, next question is, what does God saves us from our sin mean? Means this. Let me just quickly unpack this as well. 
and hopefully you guys can watch some of this later too. Uh, what does it mean that he saved us from our sin? First realize sin is the only problem mankind has. And because of sin, because of what Adam and Eve did, and because now what we have chosen to do is uh, being heirs or, 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 or part of that lineage, is that we have committed sin. And sin has two negative consequences. One, it gives us a bad heart. So our heart is now cold toward the things of God. We no longer desire the things of God, nor have affection for God. Number two, it gives us a bad record in the courtroom of heaven. So my record as I stand before heaven, if I did not receive Christ, I would have broken his laws. I would have been a fugitive. I would have been so many things that I've committed against the standard of God. And so when Jesus came, now think about this. This is so cool. When Jesus came, he did not come because we were sinners. He, became, he came because we were sin, but he came to redeem sons and daughters back to the rightful place. He didn't just go, man, they're, they're sinners and I'm just going to go and forgive them. No, he came and redeemed, which means purchased back sons and daughters that we already were. We just lost sight of who we were because of sin. And when he saves us, he deals with two things. He gives us a brand new heart, which is called the new man. That heart now has an affection for God and desires for God. And then he clears our record and says that we are justified in the courtroom of heaven. So before God, I stand righteous. Just as Jesus stood before the Father, I stand righteous before God Almighty because of what Christ has done in my life. I hope that makes sense. So now what did Jesus do with our sin? I, I, I put these, I'm just actually, I'm going to post them because I wrote them down. Um, let me see here. All right, watch this. This is cool. All right, so what did Jesus do with our sin? John, thanks for being on, man. All right, first one is he saved us from the penalty of sin. I no longer will ever experience the penalty of my sin because Jesus experienced it for me. Number two, he delivered us from the power of sin. I no longer have to say yes to the master called sin. I no longer have to give in to temptation. I no longer have to be ruled by the, the, the fleshly desires that I possess. The third thing is that he redeemed me from the effect of sin. And so what that means is that sin no longer speaks condemnation, shame, or guilt in my life. I am completely free from what my, the effect of what sin had in my life. And the consequences may be still here. Maybe you committed some uh, erroneous sin and you are now divorced because of, it, because of it. It doesn't mean God restores the marriage, but he restores you back to a son and daughter so you don't have to be living in regret and shame and guilt because of what you used to do. The fourth one is that God cleanses me completely from the guilt of sin. This is the consciousness of sin. No longer do I have to walk around going, man, I'm just a forgiven sinner. I used to do this. And no, I walk around going, man, I am free from my past. I want to show you something. Look, 2 Corinthians 7, 2. This is the Apostle Paul, the one that commissioned um, people to kill Christians, says these words. Open your hearts to us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one and we have cheated no one. Paul, are you kidding me? Do you know what you did to the Christians? He says, we have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one and we have cheated no one. He no longer saw his past. He was no longer guilty of who that used to be because he was crucified with Christ and now Christ lived in him. That is the old past. Things are gone. And the number five, what Jesus does with our sin is he sets us free from the bondage of sin. You are free from whatever it is you're struggling with. It may be uh, struggling with what you watch on the internet, struggling with the words that you speak to other people, struggling with your attitude toward the things of God, whatever it is that you struggle with and you feel like, man, I've struggled with this my entire life. I am here to remind you, you have been set free from that bondage. The prison doors are unlocked. Push them open. And now let's learn how to walk in our freedom. So our sins passed present and future have been forgiven under the blood of Christ. God no longer deals with you and I about our sin. He may convict us. He may say, you know what? That's not who you are, but he's always going to bring you back to the righteousness of God and what the lamb has secured uh, for us on our behalf. Uh, but think about this. The reason why I can say that he's forgiven our past, present, and future sins is because Jesus died before you ever sinned. So every sin that you commit has been in the future from when Jesus died. Think about that for a second. Um, 
And so that is important to understand is that I'm not going to go, hey, I can sin whatever I want. No, because my heart's changed. Grace transforms me. I don't want to sin. I don't want to be under the bondage of sin. I want to live for God. And I consider myself to be dead to my old man. All right. So let's see. Uh, next question here. You mentioned God doesn't see anything wrong with us. Um, then what about Hebrews chapter 12? Uh, verse five through nine that talks about God disciplining and correcting. Um, and so here's, here's a, how I'd reply to that is that he sees and he deals with what we do wrong, but sees nothing wrong with us. Does that make sense? So he sees and he deals with our behavior, but he does not see anything wrong with us. And so he has the ability to take our behavior and deal with it but to not see us according to our behavior or according to our feelings. He believes about us what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross. And that's why he gives us permission to believe the same thing. Powerful, isn't it? So he is correcting our behavior, which is not in line with who we are. So he is disciplining us so that it will realign us and produce a peaceable fruit of righteousness and holiness, the Bible says. And he, so he doesn't deal with our old man. So many of us, I just had a great breakfast with a young man this morning, and I was uh, sharing with him. Hey, Bree, thanks for being on, sister. Uh, he was sharing, or we were sharing about how God does not, or how we constantly talk to God about our old man and our struggles, and our sin, and our mistakes, and I'm not this, and I'm not this, when God is going, man, I want to talk about who I made you to be in Christ Jesus. And so he doesn't deal with our old man. God is not wanting to have conversations about our old man. He is dead, and he has risen a new man in Christ Jesus. Um, and so he deals with our behavior when it's out of line with who we really are, our identity. And so our behavior is only a byproduct it's never the issue at hand. That is not what God is primarily going to deal with. He always deals with what? Identity. So he gets our perspective to see from his perspective how he sees us. Then we renew our mind to that, and then we start to see our behavior and language change. And oftentimes we mess up and we sin, and so we try to fix our behavior, which is a leading cause to a wrong perspective, and then it leads to functional Christianity. Uh, so God is correcting behavior, but he does not identify our behavior as who we are. All right. All right, next one. Um, can you explain the pit stop philosophy a bit more? Uh, I know some of you may have grasped this, but um, at New Day, the Lord gave me a picture second month into the plant of planning a new day is a picture of a pit stop and a garage. And he said, Justin, what if we started, what if New Day was a pit stop church rather than a garage? And so I knew that I had to renew my mind to what that looked like because there was a new perspective. I had to renew my mind to it. And now the language would be very different. Um, and I started to see what that could possibly look like, that people are running their race or they're, 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 they're doing what they're called to do. And then New Day is a pit stop. It's a, it's a hub to, to send out disciples and raise up and equip sons and daughters to go and continue the race that God has called them to continue. Um, and so I started to begin to see that, man, you guys are not necessarily there to help me build New Day, although many of you are going to be a, play a vital part in helping me build what we call people. <laughs> Our ministry is to people. and It's not just a ministry to, to pick up some garbage or to hand out a flyer or to play an instrument. That has nothing to do about the end goal. It's about raising up God's people. Uh, so that they can go back into the race of what they were called to do. And so I got a picture in my mind of now serving and equipping God's people. And Ephesians 4, 11, and 12 really stood out to me that the purpose of the fivefold office is to nurture and prepare and to equip God's people for the work of their ministry. And so I knew it was just a matter of time. It's taken 12 months before we got here that I was going to begin to dive in into what that actually looks like. But first, he really wanted to call us up into our identity. So the pit stop philosophy is more or less a vision for the church uh, that we won't have many programs here and do many things like this because I'm equipping 
you guys as much as I possibly can, as much as Jim can, to go out and to do the work of the ministry outside those four walls. There is homeless people, there are orphans, there are organizations that desperately need our help and our assistance. Um, and so that, I think, explains that. So let me just put that question there. Yeah, so like, why are you posting your questions there? Okay, hey, Mike. Um, okay, so... I thought these were two good questions. I really want to make sure I just take a little bit of time here. Uh, Justin, what's your take on name it and claim it? And how do you feel about the prosperity gospel? Um, from where I come from, I'm all too familiar with both of these phrases. Um, I've grown up with a sense of what this means and how it plays out or looks in a person's life. And I have the ability to see it played out over a decade of time. So I, I can see the beginning nature of the excitement of it the process of it not working well, and then people growing despondent and becoming very self-centered because of it. Um, so when I hear name it and claim it, it comes from this idea that you can call those things that do not exist as though exist and you can call them into your life. And so what happens is, and my goodness, I hope I didn't get too riled up here. What happens is when you do not deny yourself and take up your cross, which is the first steps of even walking with Christ, Self rises up and goes, ooh, I like this. So I'm going to now, I'm going to start to now believe God for, oh man, I'm going to, I'm going to just call a home and I'm going to call money in and I'm going to call this relationship in. And so we start to take this book and use it for our personal gain. And so we start to confess things that we think God should give us because that would make us happy. And we have the power of God to speak those things in existence, existence. And it becomes very self-centered, very self-absorbed, and very discouraging to so many people when those things do not come to pass because I spoke it and I spoke it. And we make it very functional rather than relational. And so here's my take on it is that the purpose of speaking God's word, and I, I share this often with many of the guys um, that are probably on here, the purpose of speaking God's word is to override this. Sometimes we have crazy thoughts that go in our mind. And so when I speak God's word, I just remind myself who I am. And so when a thought comes in, Justin, you'll never succeed at what God called you to. I'll be, I can do all things through Christ who gives me the strength. Father, I just thank you that I can do all things. And so I just call my mind down and those thoughts, I take those thoughts by captive. And I just remind myself, I can do all things through Christ who gives me the strength. When somebody's having a tough time or, or being real difficult toward us and, you know, we were having a tough time loving him, Father, I just receive your love and I thank you that I can forgive them as you have forgiven me and I just love them. Father, love never fails and I thank you that I possess love and I'm becoming love and so what I'm doing is I'm overriding my mind rather than, Father, I thank you right now that I have that house in Jesus' name and I have that money in Jesus' name and I have that, that car in Jesus' name. And so I'm just going to call those things in one after another and I'm just going to speak it because what happens is without even realizing it, we drifted away from the grace of the gospel into uh, our own personal, I want this and I am going to use this and I'm going to use him to get what I want and to get where I want to go. No, deny yourself, take up your cross, and now receive everything that he has for you. So rather than a car or a brand new home that I want to speak into existence, Father, I thank you that the home that I own is full of your peace. <laughs> and Father, rather than this relationship, Father, I thank you that the one that you long for me to be with, that I can do ministry with, and that I can love, Father, faithfully, Father, I thank you that that person will come into my life eventually. And so what I do is I start using my words to override this so I can start to believe and receive what God has for me. So name it and claim it. Um, when it's moved from a self-centered um, um, position, it has detrimental effects on many people. We grow very discontented because we're not happy with where we're at. And so I can just simply take the word, speak the word, and watch it happen in my life. It doesn't work like that. Our mission is way greater than just a better life that we have on this earth. Secondly, how do you feel about the prosperity gospel? Um, I would say, knowing it very, 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 very well, I would say it has done a lot of damage in people's lives because the focus is self. Anytime self is focused, whether it's religion, it's ambition. I mean, I was ambitious in ministry is because self was fueling me to do great exploits for God. It was wrong. But same thing with the prosperity gospel is it, it gets it, – it um, um, 
tainted and impurified because although God, he says in Deuteronomy chapter six, man, I'm going to give you houses that you did not buy or you did. I'm going to give you vineyards you did not plant. I'm going to receive from God all that he has for me, but I'm not going to allow myself to rise up and go, man, I need some more money. Father, I thank you for this. I need this money and I just want you to prosper me so I can do this, 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 this. Man, we have to be so careful that self is not at the center of those very words. And so I put here that grace transforms us, what? Out of who we used to be into the image of Christ. And then, man, all of God's favor is now attracted to the Jesus in me. And I realize this is, this. I think this is important. Uh, this lost my thought. Oh, is that the gospel is not about a better life for me or happiness for me. It's about transformation into the image of Jesus Christ. And the more I become like him, the more I long for the things that he longs for. Uh, so be very careful with the self, no matter what it is, whether it's prosperity, whether it's sin, whether it's grace, anytime self rises up, it will pervert any of those different things. Um, uh, Justin, you believe you know your ministry. How do we know for sure um, that it is God's ministry for you? Let me just post those uh, last two questions. And thanks, you guys, for being on. I hope you guys are enjoying this as much as I am. So you believe you know your ministry. How do we know for sure that it's God's ministry for us? Um, you know, the person who wrote this, I, I text them back, and I just jokingly said, um, I do not have for sure as part of my vocabulary. And I mean that with sincerity. I don't know for sure anything. And I, I so I take, I take that stuff outside of my um, – well, I just lost my questions – I take that outside out of my vocabulary and I don't go, man, I really need to know for sure. Or I don't want to make a mistake. I truly believe this is that God has given me a green light. He's given all of you his promises, your yes and amen. So he's given you green lights to move forward, but I'm not going to move forward presumptuously without going, God, if this is not for me, let me know. Like, I want God to know, hey, I don't want to just sit back and wait for what you want me to do because sometimes I just you know, comfort and fear keep me from doing that. No, God, I want to march forward and step into things um, that I would love to or that I long to. And if at any point, God, you're like, you know what, that's not for you, then that's great. I would say this. I think this is important. This is why me and Pastor Jim work so well together is that I feel like God has called me to lead a work. Jim feels like God has called him to help me or help someone lead a work. And to be comfortable with that, like not to be insecure, like, no, I want to be the leader or, you know, I'm scared to be the leader. No, don't long for the place or the position, long to be what God has designed you to be. Some of you are not cut out necessarily because God didn't create you that way to be the lead person. So great, enjoy not being, but support a ministry that is doing something and you can uh, come alongside of that. And so when I look at that, I look at a green, green light. And then I'm looking for affirmation from men of God that I respect in my life, no matter what it is. As I make these steps forward, watching the fruit that abounds or that if something dies in my heart, man, I can kind of feel whether or not God is really uh, moving me in that direction. Uh, anytime I fear something that I feel like God is maybe leading me toward, it's a good indication that God's leading me in that direction. I, I always have said this before is that fear is the door and right behind the door is God's will. So if you want to find God's will, go up to your, some of your greatest fears and you will feel or you'll kind of get a good sense of what God has for you. Um, and then lastly, I put here is, um, did God say no to you about it? Have you discussed it with him? And if he hasn't said no, then move forward until you see that there's a red light there, that it's just not working uh, inside of your life. And so I don't know for sure. Uh, if I'm supposed to pastor New Day or if we're supposed to start the church, I just believe that I'm supposed to. It was confirmed on many different uh, occasions. I believe it's something that uh, God has given me a gifting to do to shepherd and pastor. And so I'm moving forward until he gives me a green light and says, you know what, or a red light, it's time to move in this direction. I'm going to keep on taking steps in that direction. Uh, great question. Let me just uh, post that one just as well. If you guys have any other questions, um, send them on here. And let me just look at it. If somebody has one, I saw one earlier from uh, Karen. How do you balance God's grace and correction? How do you speak someone in life uh, who is in sin and want them to be free? Okay, I love this one, Karen, because this is the, the tension between grace and calling people up and not calling them out. Um, okay. To me, it's a big, 
difference of calling somebody up is what calling them up into their identity. Correction is dealing with their behavior. So I remind people that's not who you are. And I, I'm going to come to, let's say, say I heard somebody, let's say, uh, talking down or screaming at their wife. Hey, 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 Billy Bob, man, can I talk to you for a moment? Yeah, what's going on? Hey, man, I, I, I know you're a son of God. I know that you love the things of God. And I just want to encourage you. I heard you talking like that to your wife. And, and that's not what we do as sons. That's not who we are as sons and daughters. Um, and I just want to encourage you to be who God called you to be, that we don't have to talk to other people like that, that we can receive God's love because God doesn't. So what I'm doing is I'm calling them up into who they are, their identity, rather than begin to go, I'm going to speak the truth and love to you and you just need to do this. And what I'm doing is I'm now calling them into their old man and their old behavior. No, we can correct old behavior in old ways, but we call up into identity. And so I'm able to separate the two is that I do not see them as what they do. I see them as who God says that they are inside of their life. So uh, once you look at that again, Karen, hopefully that works uh, for you. Uh, what excites me the most about New Day in the past 14 months? Truthfully, you guys catching the truth of who you are and who God is for you. This idea of relational before functional has impacted so many people in ways that I never thought possible. And it has been a joy to watch you recapture a, a, a joy of your salvation, a love for the things of God, and walking in the freedom of God. So what excites me most is not the fact that it's growing pretty consistently. Uh, what excites me the most is watching each and every one of you at their own different seasons and own different ways, receiving what God has for you and putting away the old man and starting to see yourself the way that God sees you and who he is uh, for you. So um, let me just put that one down. All right. Uh, what did Paul mean? Uh, let me just skip that for right now because it might be a lengthier answer. Um, here's another one similar to the one I just got from Karen. Is it okay for ministers to call up believers like that of a disciplinary dad? Um, I was discipled um, by my aunt, and she was kind of a believer who literally called me over the phone in the middle of my rebellion telling me to stop or else I would be caught in my sin. Also emphasizing that she had a vision, and the Lord told her to call me. I looked her up as a Christian, and though she's not perfect as I am not also. Um, and so she's asking this question. I want to go, let's see, at the point where it left. How do you tell someone to stop their sinful lifestyle? Telling them, okay, I would say same thing. is Separate identity from behavior. And if, if, if you know that they've received Christ and they're struggling with this and they're not just, you know what, I'll do what I want, screw God kind of thing, um, that's a hard issue. But when it's not that and they're struggling and they just keep on going back to the same thing, man, that's where I'm going to give them a double dose of of. Um, double dose of God's grace and his goodness in his life. It's the goodness of God that leads one to repentance. We overcome evil by good. And so I'm just going to call them up into who they are. And, uh, and I'm going to, of course, if I need to address that behavior and address that sin in their life, because it's not who they are. Um, that's definitely not who they are. And so I get the privilege of discipling them by calling them up into their identity. Uh, let me just finish off with two more. Uh, what did Paul mean in Galatians 4.19? Until Christ is formed in you, what will that look like? To me, that the best, uh, simplest answer I can think of is that we are going from glory to glory. And although Christ, which is the mystery of the gospel, he is in us, Christ within us, it is about him upgrading us from glory to glory to glory. I have an iPhone, I think it's an 8. I know there's an iPhone 10 out there. There's iPhone 1s out there. Um, and so many believers, I believe, are operating out of a one iPhone one rather than an iPhone eight. They haven't been upgraded and allowed Christ to be formed in them. They're focused on their old man. They're focused on their sin. They're trying to be a Christian. They're trying not to sin and they're trying to be a good person. And that has nothing to do with the kingdom. Absolutely. Uh, whatsoever. And so Christ being formed in me is me thinking more like Christ, means seeing more like Christ, and then me talking more like Christ. So remember, perspective, then mindset, then language. So he changes my lens. He gives me a lens to see as Christ sees everybody. And then he changes, and then I start to renew my mind to that way of seeing. And then my language starts to change, and I start to live a different life. And so Christ formed in me, it's going to be an ongoing process of sanctification of me becoming more and more with the ability to see as Christ sees, to see my problems, to see others, to see uh, God and to see myself. 
when he gives me that new lens, then I start to think differently. I try to think differently with that lens. So great questions, everybody. Thank you for all joining on. I do encourage you to watch the replay of this if you just joined on. And, uh, and hopefully it has encouraged you and it has blessed you. And uh, Karen says, what about the lost? I think, um, I'm not sure exactly what you're referring to, Karen, when you say that. But if it's in line about correction, um, I truly, truly believe that we are called to share the ministry of reconciliation, that God has forgiven their sins. That is the message we get to tell others that God is not holding their sins against them. All they have to do is receive and to surrender to the amazing love of a father that he has for them. Um, and so that they can be redeemed back into a place of sons and being daughters with God. Jess, you're welcome. Very, very welcome. It's about the lost experiencing the love of God. <laughs> and then they can repent by what? By surrendering their life saying, okay, I can't take anymore. I don't deserve this. But I just have learned about how good this God is in their life. And so we love people into the place of sonship. We don't have to correct them all the time. There's a place, of course, where we can, um, but I don't live there. I live in a place of calling somebody up and making sure that they know how much I love them because God loves me so much just as well. So I love you all. Uh, thank you for those. If you have any further questions, man, just throw them down in the comment section and uh, let's have a good dialogue continuing from here forward. So if anything's that I said did not sit well with you, uh, just ask for understanding because there's more depth to it. And, and I hope you know that many people will attack the grace message that we adhere to because they don't understand what we're trying to say. Um, it is a transforming, powerful thing in our lives so that we can become sons and daughters and do what he's called us to do. I love you all. Father, I pray for every single person that was on here or that is watching, and I thank you that you bless them and that you empower them to be sons and daughters. I call them up into who they are in your eyes, that they will fulfill every ounce of ministry you have placed within them, and they will step into the giftings that you have given to them. In Jesus' name, amen. Love you guys. Have a great day.